I'm Cassidy Hall. I am Kevin Johnson. I'm Carl McCollman, and we are Encountering Silence. Encountering Silence is made possible by listeners like you. Please visit www.patreon.com slash encountering silence. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash encountering silence. To learn how you can be part of the circle and share in our efforts to bring silence into our all-too-noisy world. Joining us on Encountering Silence today is Christine Walters Paintner, author, poet, Benedictine Oblet, spiritual director, t- teacher, and the online abbess at www.abbeyofthearts.com, a virtual monastery without walls, offering a variety of classes in contemplative practice and creative expression. She is the author of 12 books on spirituality, contemplative practice, and creative expression, including The Artist's Rule, Nurturing Your Creative Soul with Monastic Wisdom, The Eyes of the Heart, Photography as a Christian Contemplative Practice, The Wisdom of the Body, A Contemplative Journey to Wholeness for Women, and The Soul's Slow Ripening, 12 Celtic Practices for Seeking the Sacred. She has a forthcoming collection of poetry, Dreaming of Stones, which will be released by Paraclete Press in 2019. Christine earned her PhD in Christian spirituality from the Graduate Theological Union in Berkeley, and her professional status as registered expressive arts consultant and educator from the International Expressive Arts Therapy Association. Along with her husband, John, she has lived in Galway, Ireland since 2012. Together, they lead pilgrimages and writing retreats in Ireland, Scotland, Germany, and Austria. Christine Walters Painter, welcome to Encountering Silence. Thank you, Carl. I'm really delighted to be here. So, spending some time on your website this morning, you have this amazing kind of personal statement. And I, I would like to just share a little bit of it today because I think it really is, well, it's a beautiful statement. It really moved me to read it. So I'd love to, to, to share a little bit of this and then, you know, hopefully this can open up a conversation. So on your website, you write, quote, I believe in the revolutionary power of stillness and spaciousness and of practicing presence to life's unfolding. I believe this commitment can change the world. I, I believe in radical hospitality to both the inner and outer stranger, so that all parts may know themselves as welcome and part of a wholeness. The monk's path matters in this world of division, speed, and productivity. I believe, along with the great writer Dostoevsky, that beauty will save the world. At the very least, it has saved me more times than I can remember from dwelling in a place of despair at the world. I believe that when we tend to the birthings in our hearts, we cooperate with a divine creative force at work, always bringing something new into being. 
The artist's path matters in this world where it is so easy to grow cynical and believe nothing will change. I could go on and on, but, but that's probably a good place to, to, to stop because I'd like to hear your voice. How did you get inspired to write such wisdom? Tell, tell us a little <laughs> bit about your story, Christine. Well, I suppose I've always been drawn to the, the contemplative path, in part just a function of being an introvert, a really strong introvert. And um, early on, kind of in my spiritual education, say in college and after college, I was really informed by the Jesuit tradition because I was, you know, went to a Jesuit school and did spiritual exercises and all of that. And it, and I love that tradition and that path. But when I went to graduate school and I had to study the history of Christian spirituality and I started to read about St. Benedict. Actually, it was actually St. Hildegard of Bingen that was sort of the doorway in for me at first. I discovered her first and I fell in love with the richness and breadth of her creative vision, her life as you know a nun in the, in the monastery. And then I wanted to know more about her and she kind of led me to Benedict. And I discovered that I really was much more of a contemplative and a monk at heart than I had realized. And it was sort of like, you know, here is this tradition, this set of practices that met my deep longing in a way that what I had been exposed to before hadn't. And I think Hildegard for me brought together the that longing for silence and stillness, as well as the creative, the creative part of me and, and life that I was already bringing into retreats and discovered for me it was like a path of real aliveness. And poetry has been sort of the primary love and passion for me and writing in general, but to then bringing in photography and movement and all of these things as ways of, yeah, finding, I guess, a more integrated depth and wholeness to our expression in the world, if that makes sense. That's beautiful. And, and speaking of just, you know, being interested in the contemplative life, I mean, obviously, in large part, especially as, as a fellow introvert, we find that that's often heavily connected to silence. And I wonder if you have any special or particular meeting of silence, whether from your childhood or adult life, where you found that that was an important aspect of the contemplative life for you? Well, you know, the the experience that comes to mind is actually from about just maybe 12 or 13 years ago. I was living in Seattle at the time, and I went up to Salt Spring Island, which is one of the chain of islands up in British Columbia, and I brought my car and my dog and some art supplies, and I went and rented a cottage for a week, and it was the first time I had ever gone on a silent retreat that wasn't structured by somebody else. Sure. And I, and I went there for that time, and what I discovered was not just how nourishing the silence was, which I already had known, but there was something about following my own rhythms in that silence that was a huge awakening to me. Uh, and it was also the middle of winter. And I think it was part of my whole journey of falling in love with winter. And I think of winter as very much like the contemplative season and I think speaks to a lot of why our culture doesn't really like winter <laughs> in general. Can, but, can you speak a little more to that? Just because I, I find that so beautiful and we're in the midst of encountering winter right now. And um, it seems to be such a lull for so many people and so hard to to recognize it as a contemplative experience. Yeah, well, I think of, you know, at least Western culture is very spring and summer oriented, very oriented towards blossoming, towards fruitfulness, towards productivity, towards, you know, full creative expression. And I guess 
what I've learned from the seasons is that the creative process is those things, but it's also the autumn and winter. So it's also the harvesting and the releasing and the letting go and the moving into stillness and silence and unknowing and mystery. And so I guess, you know, a lot of people who are, you know, working in creative fields might talk about blocks. And I tend to think of blocks are often, I think, the times when we just need to rest and we're fighting against that. And that's why we have a block <laughs> as opposed to just saying, okay, I'm in, I'm in the winter season right now of my creative process. Can I allow that to happen? Because my experience is that when I really do allow the fullness of the winter and the stillness and the silence, that creative energy rises up. I can't even help it. I mean, I, <laughs> I don't try and make it happen. It just, it just comes. Mm. So, <laughs> yeah. Such a lovely connection, too. Now that you say that, my head is spinning with all sorts of metaphorical things about seeds lying dormant under snow and all, you know, all sorts of stuff happening there. It's beautiful. So following up on that, you, you've given us a season and, and kind of a, a moment of silence during the retreat. Is, is there a place that kind of speaks silence to you as well? That, that you go to that place or you visited or it, it could be an actual specific place that you recall as a kid, like a favorite tree or something, but it doesn't have to be. I'd say that at this stage of my life, the forest is the place that most calls to me. I think I used to be much more of a, an ocean person, and I and I live right by the sea, so I, I do have that as well. But there's something about the forest, there's something about the, you know, the ocean is that is very kind of wide open and raw and exposed, and there's something really invigorating about that. The forest for me is this kind of lovely kind of containment and sort of holding space that, you know, you know, go for a long walk in the woods and yeah, listen the, you know, the listen to the sounds of the trees and the creatures and the just whatever is bubbling up inside of me as well. The forest for some reason has become a place of just real richness and encounter. And yeah, the place that I seek out. Unfortunately, I moved to a country where <laughs> there's not a lot of forest, but luckily I can get to it, uh, you know, without too much trouble. <laughs> just to go back for a second, I just, you know, I was thinking about talking about the seasons in the forest. Another thing that I love about walking in the woods or at least among trees is being able to witness that cycle of, you know, flowering and fruitfulness and release and, and the spare, I find winter trees incredibly achingly beautiful. And part of, I think, that journey for me happened after my mother died and feeling really met in that grief in that winter landscape and that spareness. And the, like the words were not, you know, people tried to say words to me that were supposed to be helpful. And really what was helpful was just to, to enter into that space of stillness and just, yeah, just really try and meet that. And I think the world is afraid of that stillness because they're afraid of what they're going to encounter there. I, I, I feel like I just need to bring this up, even though this probably won't be published for several weeks. But we're recording this two days after the synagogue shooting in Pittsburgh. And I know that it's, you know, that's kind of when you're talking about grief, that's right where I go. And you're living in Ireland now, Christine, and you've you've written a lovely book about Celtic spirituality. So, uh, you know, obviously the, the Celtic aspect, you've mentioned Hildegard, you've mentioned Benedict, but it, there's also this whole rich Celtic tradition. Mm -hmm. And when I think of, of the Celtic tradition, I think of St. Brigid and, and also the goddess Brigid and her role as kind of the inventor of keening. Mm. So I'm curious, especially given, you know, this, 
you know, your heartfelt description of, of the trees meeting you after the loss of your mother. Can you th- maybe reflect with us on the relationship between silence and grieving or lament or keening? Do you mm-hmm. see some interesting connecting points there? Mm, that's a really beautiful question. I think for me, what I've learned from going through grief is that there's a there needs to be a willingness to walk into a space of mystery and unknowing. So when my when my mother died, she you know, I was thirty three and she died kind of unexpectedly. And so it was a tremendous loss. And I went through, you know, what I would consider a dark night experience of really being having having all my certainties about God stripped away, which was especially painful given that I was professionally a theologian and, you know, this was my work. And so it was a little, it was a hard road to navigate (laughs) when that was my public role. And uh, I'm very thankful for a spiritual director who, you know, really was with me during that whole process and continued to affirm for me that it's actually in the descending into that unknowing and the mystery that the that the new awareness of how God actually is in my life will be reborn. And to recognize that even my current understanding of God, while very different than before, is still very limited. And so there's a sense for me that grief brings up my own humility, my own sense of I don't I don't know how everything works and and I can re- I guess silence helps me to kind of rest into that mystery and that unknowing and I think sometimes perhaps we rush to fill that void and explain it with words and it does a lot of violence and damage I think to people rather than just letting them sit in their experience and being a companion with them that's you know another aspect of silence for me is just sitting in that intimacy and companionship together without needing to say anything Speaking of women, of strong, powerful, wonderful women, your book, The Wisdom of the Body, A Contemplative Journey to Wholeness for Women. I'm curious about just kind of if you could speak into why you felt it was necessary to write a book specific towards women and just that uniqueness of female wisdom, Hagia Sophia, you know, all these beautiful things that that women meet in in the contemplative journey. Yeah, I... Well, I I wrote that book out of experience, too. Uh, I've had um, an autoimmune illness for my whole adult life. um, And it's something that, again, has also also been sort of a place of grief and working through all that. And I suppose has just made me very, and I suppose in some ways has been a companion to the contemplative life that I think Early on, I discovered Mary Earle's books about a Benedictine wisdom for living with illness. She has a couple of great books about that. And so that was a real consolation for me to see that there was a spiritual path that was actually mindful of the body's limitations and gentle with that. So I suppose I've been really had a heightened awareness of my body for a long time in mm-hmm. what some might say a negative way in terms of illness and pain, but has ultimately been a great gift of kind of deepening awareness of the gift, my body and the limitations, but the joyfulness, the pleasure. And I think for, for me in particular, you know, I've seen women as struggling so much with body image and going for surgeries and, you know, mm-hmm. diets. And there's like such a 
a whole industry built around violence to women's bodies. And not to say it doesn't affect men, but I think it does affect women in a particular way. And I wanted to say, you know, look, even the spiritual life has something to offer to you. And it is this, uh, I was also impacted by um, Reginald Ray, who's a Buddhist writer, and he has a lot of writing about, you know, how basically how this mindfulness practice can be too disembodied and how the la- I think yeah. he talks about the last great descent is into the wilderness of the body. And that so spoke to me as someone who loves, you know, desert tradition that, oh, what if I just, if I draw on this contemplative practice to actually drop into my physical experience with all of its pain, suffering, joy, pleasure with all of it, then I actually ha- can have another, a different kind of encounter with God that comes from that body landscape that's different than just the, the mind kind of contemplation. <laughs> it, it's hard for me to not relate this somehow to what you were saying earlier about the uniqueness and the beauty of trees, and particularly, mm-hmm. you know, in the wintertime at, at rest and, you know, just that aesthetic nature of contemplation where sometimes it's just gazing out the window. And obviously you've you've written another book or you've done another book about contemplative photography. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that and, and how that's all, how that one was birthed for you. Yeah, well, you know, it's funny because... I, when I was growing up, my grandparents on my mother's side actually owned a chain of photo stores. So I always oh, had a wow. camera. Yeah, I always had a camera in my hand as a child, and most and most people in our family did, just by virtue of that connection. Back, back uh, when you actually had to focus it and everything, right? Right, right, and yeah. you know, and develop the film and all. Right. Of that. It, it was a contemplative practice in and of itself. I mean, all of photography. <laughs> Definitely. And I think it was after, you know, becoming a Benedictine Oblate and bringing that contemplative practice more into my life, I started to realize how photography has a lot of violence in its language. So there's capturing, shooting, taking, you know, all of that. The way that we interact, yeah, with photography is this very much about seizing the moment, you know, in this kind of violent way. And I thought, well, what if, what if when we were with our camera, we looked at it as receiving a gift as opposed to taking something. And so, you know, when we work, particularly on, we do this on pilgrimage, you know, people come and we, we talk about what is the difference between moving through life, grasping all the time and what is the difference? And then how is it to move through life in an open-handed way and to breathe into that and to notice all the places, like even in our body too, to bring it back to the body that we grasp. And so oftentimes, you know, we're on a trip and we'll take out the camera and we'll be trying to capture everything we can so we can experience it later. <laughs> so what we try and do is invite people into an actual experience of what they're, what's happening now and then let and then notice if there's a moment where the camera might be a tool to focus more closely on a moment, but let it be an opportunity to receive a gift as opposed to just trying to take and seize that moment for some kind of consumption later that probably will never happen anyway because we all have too many photos on our yeah. on our stream. So what a beautiful it's like a redeeming photography um, in such a digital age. Yeah, it just, it's all about intention. You know, I think mm-hmm. that's pretty much mm-hmm. all of the contemplative life is, is just bringing that intention and awareness to everything that we do. Yeah. We often talk, share the story of 
you know, St. Kevin and the Blackbird and St. Kevin, the story goes that, you know, he's a hermit in, in Ireland and he's praying every day with his hands outstretched. And the story goes that a blackbird lands in his hand and starts to build a nest and lays an egg. And, you know, and he's realizing, oh, I can't actually withdraw my hand. And so the story says he's, he waits with his hand outstretched until that bird has hatched and flown away. And I love that story, too, because, again, it's that, that sense of, oh, like, I want to maybe I want to withdraw my hand when something like that lands in it, but what does it mean to actually stay with that experience and stay through the discomfort of it and stay through the wonder of it as well to keep those palms open. So, Our conversation will return after this brief moment of silence. Please take a breath and be present in the silence. You said you're originally from America and now you're in Ireland. And we've heard a little bit now about St. Kevin and uh, and Carl asked about St. Bridget. Are you finding that you've come home in Ireland is, is, or do you feel like you've called home? I'm kind of curious as to what you feel that trip to Ireland has offered for you in silence. Is there is there a different silence in America and a different silence in Ireland? I know that's a weird question, but... I'm hearing different threads coming out here, and I'm, I'd like to pull at that a little bit. Yeah, I I would say, well, yeah, I definitely feel like I'm coming home here. I, I feel this deep kinship to this land. And I think for me, one of the most significant aspects of moving here that I've discovered is is the relationship to the land and the landscape that I didn't experience in quite the same way in the States. Now, I did originally move to Seattle because I did fall in love with the landscape and the ocean and the forests and the mountains. But there's something about Ireland where the stories are so connected to the land that they're in where and where there's so many um, monastic ruins and, you know, pre-Christian kind of druidic ruins and stone uh, circles and all of that. And so the land becomes like this text, you know, revealing all these stories that are layered on. And where we live in Galway, we're at this juncture of the Burren, which is the limestone landscape region, and Connemara, which is the granite landscape. landscape. And I, I've never... Um, I never really actually thought too much about stone before until I moved here and realized how limestone and granite are very, very different kinds of stone. And so just to say, you know, like in the barn, there's, you know, the place where St. Coleman went to live as a hermit for seven years and you can go stand inside the cave where he lived. And it's still, you know, at the foot of this mountain face and surrounded by hazel trees and there's a holy well. And it's a place you have to walk about a mile across the wilderness to get to. And so there's this sense of like these places that speak of that longing for that stillness and silence that draw you there and that are still really held in reverence. And yeah, and, you know, we bring our pilgrims there and we spend time in silence ourselves just to hear those stories come through. So there's a sense for me of 
I think falling in love with the land in a way that I hadn't ever realized before. Yeah. hadn't experienced in quite the same way. You mentioned Hildegard and you're a, you're a poet, you're a photographer, you're a writer, you dance, visual arts. I, I feel like you are a Renaissance woman, Christine. <laughs> so I'm, I'm curious to hear about how you, how you first discerned kind of a call to creativity or expression. I'm not sure what language you would use as, as a girl, as a child, you know, how did this mm-hmm. journey begin for you? Well, I remember wanting to be a writer from like as early as I can remember that I just, that's always been my longing. And when I was growing up, my parents were not religious people. I wasn't really raised in a religious household, but we traveled a lot to Europe because my father was from Austria and we would go into cathedrals and we'd go into museums and look at the paintings and the sculptures. And so I think there was this sense for me from an early stage of having that sense of the the aesthetic kind of a reverence for the aesthetic in my life since that was kind of the role the sacred kind of place of encounter and it wasn't until you know after college I started leading retreats and integrating the arts and then I discovered I moved to the Bay Area San Francisco and I discovered this field called the expressive arts which was like a coming home for me because it was this whole field that gave language to the way I was using arts which is that it was process over product arts as healing and journey of discovery so it wasn't about creating a great artwork that you would sell or you know creating an artwork that would go in a museum it was more about tapping into that creative impulse that we all have and finding ways to create safe structures and give permission for people who have that longing to, to play basically kind of, you know, I find that creative work is a lot about just giving ourselves permission to make mistakes and to have fun and to do things that we maybe haven't done since we were a child. And there's a lot of freedom that comes with that. (laughs) I'd love to hear more about Abbey of the Arts it's, it's a virtual global online monastery, and, and you guys offer pilgrimages, online classes and retreats, reflections, resources, etc. And again, I just kind of love the, the stories of, of where these ideas ultimately came from, but it seems to be you're able to offer all of your gifts in this virtual space, but also simultaneously you have actual physical pilgrimages there, correct? Yes, correct. Okay. Correct. Okay. Yeah, so yeah. could you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, well, I suppose Abbey of the Arts, kind of in its, you know, current formulation, I suppose, started about 12 years ago when I decided to start writing a blog. (laughs) And I did that because I had finished a PhD three years before. And part of the reason I had gone for a PhD was because I wanted to be a writer and I thought somehow getting a PhD would make me a better writer, which I I don't know. I I have no idea where I got that impression. Um, (laughs) Those Jesuits. Yes. (laughs) You know, it was an incredibly valuable experience. And part of me always wanted to, I think, be an academic because I always kind of romanticized that sort of life, you know, being a teacher and having the summers to write and all of that. And so a few years after I realized that I had really been trained to write in an academic way and blogging was a great way to 
start writing for ordinary people and to write short things and to write things that were accessible. And that was sort of the doorway in. It started off as a blog. And then I decided, oh, maybe I'll do some, a couple of online retreats, the online retreats that fed into Eyes of the Heart and The Artist Rule. Those were the two first ones that I started to to lead. And there was such a hunger for it. And people signed up, you know, in droves and it was wonderful. And, and so finding, and finding a balance too, for me between the online and the the live programs and finding enough time for my own silence and stillness is definitely an ongoing kind of dance that I have because I have certainly more ideas than I actually have time and energy to put into practice. And that's a wonderful problem to have, but I'm also just incredibly grateful to have, I think the other thing about academic life was it felt really restricting to me. I was teaching for a few years at a Jesuit university in Seattle and I and while I enjoyed it to a degree, there you know there were so many things that I wanted. I really wanted to dive into the contemplative. I really wanted to dive into the creative, and the curriculum didn't have as much room for that. And so I was able to create something where I was able to basically just teach the things that I love most. And because of the beauty of the World Wide Web, those people could find me who actually had yeah. those very same passions and had that wonderful feeling of coming home themselves of finding like oh this is someone who speaks my language and I didn't even know that there were other people out there you know I heard that from a lot of people like it's such a relief to know that there are other people out there that feel that same way so it's a I think a part of it is I'm very really was fortunate to to have it all kind of align with just the way the web was developing at the time and I feel very grateful for that. (laughs) Another question we we like to talk with our guests about is this aspect of of toxic silence or you know being silenced and I wonder you know especially as a female and you know a a leader a spiritual director you know retreat leader and all this have you encountered any kind of toxic silences of of being silenced just because you're a woman well I suppose someone once called me a heretic which I kind of took as a compliment um (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, ultimately, I think because my work now falls outside the institution, I don't have a lot of uh, outside pressures. Mm. You know what I mean? I mean, there are people that Mm -hmm. certainly think that what I'm doing is too outside the realm of whatever is acceptable. I think part of the work with the creativity, though, is working with people who have had that toxic silence like imposed upon them. It's often, you know, what you know, people's childhood experiences where they're told, oh, you know, don't be so loud and out there. Don't, you know, you really, you're not very good at drawing, so don't do it. Or you're not very good at writing, so don't do it. So I feel like the creative expression work and part of why we work so hard to create really safe containers for that and permission for people to do that is because they have to work through some of that toxicity that's part of their story and break through that. And then be in a space where they're allowed to express whatever comes up. And the, and we also, you know, make sure, you know, in that quote that Carl mentioned from my website earlier, it talks about hospitality to inner and outer strangers. And a lot of the work yes. we do is about retrieving those lost parts of self. And we work a lot with people to, you know, when people come on pilgrimage and, you know, we say, you don't have to feel a particular way. You don't have to come on this pilgrimage feeling like, all excited all the time to be here like you might actually be feeling some grief sometimes or some anger or you know things things come up and the more that we can welcome that in and make space for it and learn how to be present to it the more I think we get you know experience that kind of healing uh, presence in our lives 
Mm. Yeah. It's interesting, too, the language you use reminds me very much of uh, The Artist's Way by Julia Cameron. Uh, very yeah. similar about like blocking and the, the negative voices in our head that stop the creative path and uh, mm-hmm. very, very similar. So that makes me think uh, we've talked about some big names and things. One of the questions we always ask is, do you actually have a, a, a silence hero? And what we mean by that is there is there someone either alive or dead, uh, an actual particular person or, you know, or something metaphorical where it kind of encapsulates for you silence and you hold up as kind of a model that you can walk toward is it it could be as something as simple as you know saint benedict or or something mm-hmm. or, or a personal person you know somebody in your life that we don't even know who they are um you know i actually think for me it's the desert mothers because i love the desert tradition and i've been my contemplative life has been so enriched by it in large part because of that you know working with thoughts and working with kind of the inner conflict, you know, that we were just talking about. And I think that mothers in particular, because, well, first of all, for so long, they've just been subsumed under the writings of the fathers. And there aren't, of course, as many of their texts, but just to, to imagine, you know, living in second and third century Egypt and Syria, and to be a woman at that time, and to make that choice to go out into the desert to live a life of solitude had to have been taken tremendous courage. And I love those stories, because, the sayings are, you know, very, they very much invite us to rest into that place of paradox and mystery. And, you know, they're not always like straightforward, (laughs) uh, you know, ways of, of doing things. (laughs) Right. You have a forthcoming book of poetry and curious to hear poets who have particularly sung to you about silence, obviously, or contemplation, but just in general, you know, who, who are your poet heroes? Mm. Well, I love Denise Levertov. She's definitely one of my favorites. Mary Oliver, of course, sort of goes without saying almost, but she is an amazing um, woman who I can't believe the amount of poetry she produces. And, and you know, it's funny because someone once said, we were talking once in a poetry class about how do you ever worry that all your poems say the same thing? And I thought, well, I guess I have had that worry. And then I thought about Mary Oliver and I thought, you know, she says the same thing pretty much in every poem. And yet I'll still keep reading them because I want to hear that same thing over and over and over again. So certainly her, David White, I do love his poetry as well. And he's written several poems that are specific to places in the landscape that we go to on pilgrimage. So there's a beauty in meeting his spirit in that place. Um, I love the humor of like Billy Collins' poetry. You know, even some of Thomas Merton's poems are really beautiful. So there's a lot of a lot of amazing nourishment out there. <laughs> You're speaking our language. <laughs> you know, th- this has been a rich conversation, Christine, but a question that is just coming up in my heart, and it's, it's a two-part question, and, th- you know, feel, feel free to do with this whatever you want, but as a spiritual guide, as the abbess of this amazing online abbey, as a writer, as somebody who helps other people to either give birth to their creativity, or in some cases, even to resurrect their, their buried creativity. Where is your deepest fear and where is your deepest hope? That's a big question. It's really beautiful. My, I think my fear comes from all the, the scapegoating that happens culturally and the way that we 
demonize others. It just, yeah, it breaks my heart over and over again, like everybody else, you know, who's paying attention to this kind of thing. There's a fear of, I think because we live, it feels like we live in a time of this kind of fear of scarcity. And so everybody's kind of holding on to what's theirs. And there's this, yeah, this sense of like, we don't live in a gentle or generous culture. You know, we don't live in a place where if you're falling on hard times, you might actually have some support, whether financial or emotional from other people to really kind of step in and lift you out of that. Uh, but I suppose on the hope side, I, I think of this living this path partially or as a big part of it is li living as a witness to an alternative way of being. And so trying to live in a way that is generous and gentle and to try and yeah, not not fall into that fear of scarcity, or at least I shouldn't even say that, but to acknowledge where it exists inside of me and to bring compassion to myself in those moments, but then also to to notice that that isn't actually the truth that I want to live from. And when I'm when I do spend that time in silence and solitude, I am so nourished by this sense of something more, so much more expansive and deep and generous that that naturally spills over into how I want to live my life. And that gives me hope that there are so many people who have a hunger for that. Christine, is there a poem of yours you would mind reading to us? Yeah, I'd be happy to. I picked this poem because it's, I've been writing a series of poems about saints and animals because I have a special love of those stories that come from particularly desert and Celtic tradition, although this story is about St. Francis. And it's about a time when it was snowing outside and his brothers uh, all stayed asleep, so they didn't go to night prayer, but a grasshopper came and joined him in his prayer. So this is the poem that I wrote inspired by that. It's called St. Francis and the Grasshopper. Snow falls heavy and silent, a lake of white flakes. Francis peers out the window, time for night prayer, his brothers still tucked away in their beds. He steps out into drifts which reach his knees, breathes in the icy air, makes puffs of smoke, arrives to the chapel and sits and waits. The heavy door opens an inch, two green antennae wave gently, then large, dark eyes appear, long, slender legs, and a soft swirl of snow. Francis smiles at this friend who leaps from the doorway to land right beside him, rubs her legs together to create music for the psalms, which he sings off-key. They sit together a long time in song and silence, and after a while they depart, leaving tracks in the snow, and from the arcs and loops, you can tell they each danced their way home. Absolutely beautiful. Thank you. Mm. Thank you. Sometimes, you know, our listeners are new to who we're interviewing, and I'm wondering where you might suggest a listener begin with your work if they were new to, to everything that you do. Mm. I would say if they're if they are drawn to the integration of 
the contemplation, the contemplative path and the creative path that the artist's rule is, I feel like sort of my best expression of how those two paths come together. It draws a lot on monastic tradition, particularly Benedictine and some desert tradition, uh, but it really is kind of the work that explores for me a, a lot of the parallels between the contemplative teachings and um, how they might nourish, nurture and nourish our creative path. Mm -hmm. So that would be a good place to start. If And if the creative part feels a little too intimidating, I'd say start with a book like Lexia Divina, because that book really sort of introduces, that practice is very close to my heart. And, and at, towards the end of the book does introduce praying with art. So that might be a more gentle kind of entry point for someone who feels maybe a little too intimidated just mm -hmm. to dive right in. <laughs> let let me jump in here, uh, Christine, uh, because I often do uh, introduce retreatants to Lexio, and I often mention your book because you have such an expansive and inclusive and welcoming approach to Lexio that it's more than simply encountering a text, but it's also Lexio with with art, Lexio with with your body, Lexio mm -hmm. with with the trees and and i i found i find your approach to lexio to be so nurturing for me and it's wonderful to share it with others so mm, thank you for saying that yeah i it's my probably my favorite practice apart from just sitting in silence <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, there's such a beauty to you know like you said earlier about one of your first major encounters with silence to finding our own rhythm yeah. And I think that, you know, that the uniqueness of finding our own rhythm in our contemplative practice is so, so important. Um, thank you so much for your work, Christine. And thank you so much for your time today. Mm, yeah. Thank you. I'll really enjoyed this. So yeah. thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the Encountering Silence podcast. If you enjoy our ongoing conversation about the beauty of silence and its meaning in our lives, please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or at our website, EncounteringSilence.com. You can subscribe to our email list at our website. Connect with us on social media, on Twitter at Silence Podcast, or on Facebook at Encountering Silence. And please visit www.patreon.com slash encountering silence that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash encountering silence to become a patron of this podcast your financial support will allow us to continue creating new episodes and spreading the message of how vital silence is to our social spiritual and physical well-being thank you